Hi, Oddings. This is a Something Scary podcast. I'm your Ate Sapphire. Today's episode is all about the terrifying element of fire. We'll begin with a true story about a little girl with special gifts. Then we'll listen to a camp counselor's campfire story, investigate mysterious blazes, and learn the origin of a famous Thai creature. I receive hundreds of amazing stories submissions every single week. As always, the first story you hear is one that I've chosen to animate and post over at youtube.com snarled. Then I read a few more stories for the podcast. If you have a tale you're dying to share, send me an email at somethingscary at snarled.com. So, wanna hear something scary? The Little Media. The following is based on a true story from AJ. AJ lived in the Dominican Republic until she was about five years old. She was a very imaginative child. That's what her grandmother would call her at least whenever AJ would start telling her stories. They weren't so much stories as they were moments, very descriptive moments in time that AJ would randomly begin sharing like the one about her getting stuck in a tree. She described how she clawed her way up with all four limbs like a cat and how she could hear people yelling her name down below. She could describe in detail all of the houses on the block and how they looked in a blur as she fell towards the ground. She had another story where she was swimming in the Pacific Ocean, a place she had never been. And yet she could remember all of the buildings that lined the shore, how the water felt, how the pier looked from the ocean, and how peaceful everything was underneath the water. Now, how can you say these things when you've never been to the Pacific Ocean? Her grandmother asked her one day. I have, Grandma, AJ replied. She pointed to her head. In here. Suddenly it clicked. Her grandma realized that AJ may not actually be making any of these experiences up, but instead recalling past lives. This is a very real phenomenon among young children. They recall memories that they couldn't possibly have experienced themselves. Like one case with a little boy in Oklahoma. He would constantly yell, action, as if directing a movie. He'd have dreams where his heart exploded while he was living in Hollywood. He talked about owning a big house with a swimming pool. His mother ended up borrowing a bunch of old books about the history of Hollywood to see if she could jog her son's past life memory. And sure enough, he pointed to a man in a photo, an actor named George Raft, and claimed that was him. His mother tracked down the man's daughter, who was able to confirm all of the boy's experiences to be true. AJ's grandmother had known about this phenomenon and was pleasantly surprised to know that her granddaughter had the gift. The only thing that didn't exactly add up was how inconsistent her stories were. Sometimes she was a man, sometimes she was a young girl, sometimes she wasn't a human at all. AJ's grandmother then came to the conclusion that she might be remembering the past lives of other people. AJ's grandmother never discouraged her from sharing experiences when they came to her. She actually enjoyed them, and she was sad to see AJ go when she moved to the United States to be with her mother, Monica. Her grandmother traveled with her and upon arrival, told Monica about her daughter's special gift. But Monica didn't believe her. She's a kid, mom, Monica said. She's just making stuff up, it's what kids do. 
After moving to New Jersey, AJ didn't share as many experiences as she used to. Maybe it was because she was five now, and studies have shown that that's the average age when children stop recalling past memories. Many believe it's because that's when children start to develop memories of their current lives. Or maybe AJ was really hamming it up for her grandma. Whatever the reason, AJ wasn't as imaginative as she used to be. For about a couple of months, at least. Monica had a really close friend named Kim. They had been friends for a very long time, and AJ thought of her as the older sister she never had. Kim would often babysit AJ while Monica was at work. One day, Kim and AJ were feeding ducks at the nearby park. Out of nowhere, AJ started crying. What's wrong, sweetie? He, he burned you. What? Who did? Tracy. Who's Tracy? He was, he was angry, you left him. He spit on you and threw gas at you. He held you down and put a lighter to your face. You screamed as you melted. Kim's face turned from worry into anger. Do you think this is funny? Are you trying to scare me? Why would you say such horrible things? I'm sorry. Kim immediately took AJ home after that. When Monica came home from work, Kim told her about the upsetting things her daughter had told her. Oh, AJ, Monica sighed. I thought you were done with these stories. I was just telling her what I saw. Kim had moved to another state shortly after. It wasn't until five years later that AJ saw her again. It was Christmas and Kim arrived with a ton of gifts for AJ. They had both forgotten about the awkward incident at the park and everything felt just as it was before. AJ happily fiddled with her light bright in the living room while Kim and Monica were catching up in the kitchen. She overheard that Kim had been living in Tennessee with this guy she met, Tracy. Wait, why did that sound so familiar? AJ's ears perked up and she scooted closer to the kitchen to eavesdrop. I had to get out of there. His moods were so unpredictable. His drinking was getting worse. I just never felt safe in that house. You're safe now. You know that you can stay here if you need to. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to impose, please. I'm staying at the motel across town. I'll be fine. Okay, well, I'm always here for you. Thank you. The next morning, Monica texted Kim to make sure she was okay. Everything's great. Thanks again for being there for me, read a text from Kim. A week had passed and Monica hadn't heard from Kim again. She thought maybe she'd worked everything out with her boyfriend or maybe she'd found a new place of her own. Monica and AJ were eating breakfast. Monica was scrolling through her Facebook newsfeed. She almost choked on her food. I, I don't believe it. Kim, Kim is dead. How did she die? AJ asked. She was burned. Wait. All of this sounded familiar. Why did this sound familiar? Monica thought about what Kim had told her five years ago. She thought about what her mother had told her about AJ's ability to see past lives. She was starting to think that maybe it wasn't the past she was seeing. Monica stared at her daughter who burst into tears. I tried to warn her, Mom. And now, more Something Scary.
This next story is from the No Sleep subreddit, written by username Vital Duel, entitled A Campfire Story. For a number of years, I was a camp counselor at an overnight camp in the Muskokas. I loved it more than any job I've ever had. For one, I got to tell as many scary stories as I could sputter out. There was nothing better than hanging around a dying campfire with a bunch of junior high kids who were demanding the scariest, most blood-curdling tales I knew. And I told them all. The babysitter and the eerie clown statue. The driver and the creepy gas attendant. The woman and her licking dog. I saved my best stories for the overnight trips we made in Algonquin Park. For non-Canadians, it's a massive park in the middle of Ontario, spanning nearly 8,000 square kilometers, when days would be spent canoeing on pristine lakes and nights would be spent around the fire, singing and making s'mores and being as rowdy as the only people within miles could be. Once the kids had quieted down, I told them stories of a stalker in the woods with a face so horrifying it paralyzed all of its victims in fear or the group of campers who decided to spend a night across the lake from an abandoned insane asylum. On this particular night, I'd finished up the tales, once again insisting that they were entirely true, and sent the campers to their tents. It had been an exhausting day, and none of the six kids were in any mood to stay up later. My fellow counselor had also decided to pack it in, leaving just me on a fallen log next to the dying fire. I took a deep breath of the cool, fresh, pine-scented air and looked out at the lake. The partial moon reflected off the glassy water, and on the other side I could see towering cliffs going up several hundred feet. I considered whether we could canoe over, climb up a few dozen feet, and do some cliff jumping. I grinned. The camp director would have my head if we did that. Well, if he found out. Movement at the very top of the cliffs caught my eye. There was a small light bobbing along the peak. At first, I thought it was a star, but it was larger and gave off a golden glow. It slowly moved back and forth in a small arc. As I sat up and watched it, another appeared next to it, bobbing along the top of the cliff. Then another, and another, and a few more. My stomach dropped into my feet. I grabbed my bag and pulled my digital camera out, then focused it on the little glowing orbs and used the zoom function. I counted them, and then I counted again. Oh shit. In a flash, I was up and running to the tents. Hey guys, wake up, we gotta go. There was movement in the tents, and then I had seven confused heads looking out at me. My co-counselor wore a mixture of concern and pure anger. I hate to do this, I continued, but the clouds are looking really threatening. There's a big rainstorm coming in. If we get caught in it, it's going to ruin our trip. Seriously, Laura, my co-counselor asked. We're in the middle of the woods. Where would we go? I pulled a map and flashlight out of my bag. There's a ranger station a few kilometers south of us. I traced the path with my finger. We can make it there in a few hours. The campers groaned. Can't we just go in the morning? No! I shouted, my voice echoing across the lake. I lowered it. Come on, let's get packed up and go. I'll tell you a story along the way. I smiled, though I could feel my lips quivering. It's my best one. 
That seemed to get them going, and within 10 minutes, the tents were packed up and we'd begun our trek into the deep woods, with small flashlights our only guide. When I was confident we were moving at a steady pace, I allowed myself to relax and began to tell my favorite campfire story. Centuries before the European settlers made their way into the country, it was inhabited by the First Nations people. They had made the trip from across Western Canada following the migration patterns of large animals such as buffalo and bison. Eventually, they reached Ontario, at which point they split off into smaller groups of travelers, each searching for a section of land to call their own. Legend has it that one group, consisting of about 20 men, women, and children, had ventured through this very area in search of a place to call home. Though it wasn't even the end of October, the weather had made a turn for the worse, and as the group journeyed around the lake, a fierce blizzard hit. Within an hour, the group found themselves in blinding snow and below zero temperatures. The clothes they had on them were made for the fall, not this sort of weather, and there weren't any Canada goose jackets around back then. But they pressed on. They didn't have any other choice. Night was falling as they reached a cliff bluff, which towered over a cold, choppy lake. There was no stopping for this group. They'd die if they didn't make it past the cliffs. But with darkness setting in and the snow falling even harder, visibility was almost non-existent. So one of the elders had an idea. Using the little kerosene they had left, he lit a lantern for each of the travelers and had them carry it in front of them. Not so that they could see the cliffs, but so they could see who was in front of them, allowing them to all follow each other across the narrow bluffs. With the strongest of the men leading the way, the group began to cross the cliffs. The freezing, wet snow soaked every bone in their body. The harsh wind chilled any exposed skin and threatened to push them right off the rock. Their path was no more than a few feet wide and would have been slippery to even the best of hiking boots, let alone hand-fashioned moccasins. Slowly, painstakingly slowly, they made their way up the cliffs, praying that whatever lay on the other side could shelter them from the intensifying storm. They were about halfway up, hundreds of feet above the lake, though it was well out of their vision. In fact, all they could see in this blinding storm was the lantern in front of them, acting as a beacon to guide their steps. If the light moved up, they moved up. If it went down, they moved down. Each of the travelers was almost in a trance, caring about nothing but the glowing orb a few feet away. For the leader, though, there was no such luxury. He moved forward blindly, feeling along the cliff with his free arm, though his skin was so numb he could barely feel anything. As the path wound back again, he made a misstep and lost his footing, just as a gust of wind blasted his back. He desperately grabbed for the hold, but his frozen fingers couldn't get anything. With a terrified scream, he slipped off the cliffs and fell into the icy black lake. The rest of the party didn't see him fall, of course. All they saw was his glowing orb, dropping away from the bluff and disappearing in the darkness. There was no time to mourn. They continued on, but the storm was worsening. After another minute, one of the children, his body unable to withstand the cold, dropped away, his lantern glowing until the choppy waters put it out. Another, having seen this, 
lost his balance, and fell. This pattern went on until there were just five people left, fumbling along in the darkness, following the light in front. As hard as they tried, the cliffs were unforgiving. The remaining men fell down to four, then three, and two, and then there was just one left, who legend says cursed the earth as his legs slipped and he plunged hundreds of feet down, his lantern the last one to be extinguished. Of the 20 members who tried to overcome the cliffs, I finished. Not one of them survived. They say that sometimes, when the conditions are right, you can see the orbs along the cliff, symbols of the lost travelers who will never find their homes. As the story ended, leaving the campers in an eerie silence, I saw lights up ahead. A wave of relief poured over me. We picked up the pace and found the ranger station bursting with activity, with a half dozen people running around, loading up trucks and shouting into radios. The wind was beginning to really pick up and I heard thunder in the distance. Hey, you kids. A large, burly man with a full beard and mustache ran up to us. Get in the trucks, we don't have much time. Laura and I led the kids to one of the pickup trucks. What's going on? I asked the man. Didn't you hear? Huge storm systems heading right for us. Already been tornadoes touched down. We're getting everyone out of here. Let's go. We all climbed into the truck's bed. I collapsed down, feeling like I'd just been punched in the cut. The ranger climbed into the front and we took off down a makeshift road. My head was spinning. It wasn't possible. Laura slid next to me, keeping her voice low. How did you know we had to get out of there? I looked over at her. My face felt empty of any blood. I saw the lights. What? No, no! She gasped, then caught herself. How many? I took a deep breath. Eight. She looked around at all the campers, who were now lying against each other, asleep despite the bumpy road. That's... All of us. Oh my god. I nodded and leaned against her. Laura had heard the traveler's story before, and she knew that I'd left out a key bit of information. The lights were real, but they were never random. If they were shining, bobbing back and forth, swinging in a small arc, it was because they had a message. A warning. One light would shine for each person who was about to die. I love that story. That might be one of my favorite no sleeps. I know it's like really annoying to to pick apart the logic of these, but uh, I only realized just now like, wait, if, if the narrator died, how are they telling this story? <laughs> Regardless, it's still my favorite. Our next tale is also from the No Sleep subreddit, written by username Demons Dance Alone. Ooh, I like that username. Entitled, I Was Nine When My House Burned Down. My parents, my possessions, my entire life, eaten by flames. I sat on the curb with my brother while the firemen put out the inferno. The department had a good reputation in our town. 
The old saying was, you could be next door to the police station and still have a 45-minute wait, whereas the firemen would show up the second you struck a match. Quick as they were, they didn't get there in time to rescue our parents. My brother Aiden was five, too young to really understand what had happened. We went into the custody of my sister, who was 10 years older than me, and he kept asking how long we'd be staying with her. He insisted it hadn't been the fire itself that killed our parents. It was the fire people. He drew picture after picture, filling the page with strange beings with yellow flame arms and bodies. They'd shot fire at the house, he'd said. Our parents' deaths weighed on him. He'd go mute around anybody but me or my sister. Even Cal couldn't get him to open up. Cal Dennings was one of the first firemen on the scene. He came to my sister's house afterwards to check up on us. I couldn't really bring myself to like him all that much. He had a hero complex going on, and I felt it was in poor taste for him to hit on a recently orphaned girl. But my sister fell for it anyway. I guess grief really is an aphrodisiac. Cal liked to show off. He'd been the first responder in our house, grabbed both me and my brother up and brought us outside. He told the story of our rescue over and over, embellishing it just a little more with each retelling. He wasn't a very good boyfriend. He was all about the sweeping romantic gestures. He ignored the everyday stuff. He was also emotionally tone deaf. He told my sister to cry whenever she wanted because she was pretty when she was sad. To be honest, I'm not sure how the relationship lasted as long as it did. Maybe my sister was timid about breaking up with a town hero. But as she sat on the couch with a fake grin plastered on her face while Cal related yet another story of his escapades, I knew we were headed for disaster. That summer might as well have been called fire. Fire was everywhere. In the hills, in the camping ground, in the town. Houses went up. Stray cigarettes landed in dead grass. Every sunset was ruby red because of all the smoke. The fire department was pulling a lot of weight in those days. I remember Cal only showing up once every few days, jabbering excitedly about the new blaze. The city had been cutting funding for its emergency departments. Now the firefighters were looking at an increase due to the sudden urgency. The day my sister broke up with Cal, I heard the fire truck wailing away to the hills, imagining it emulating Cal's grief. He hadn't taken it well. He pulled the, after all I've done for you, card, and my sister exploded. It was his job to save lives. If he hadn't saved ours, he would have done a shitty job. I watched her lay into him, throwing all his posturing back in his face. Cal slammed the front door as he left. That night, Aiden woke me up. My sister worked the late shift, so we had microwave dinners and put ourselves to bed. Aiden was crouched at my side. He hadn't turned any lights on, so I could just make out the side of his face from the light that leaked in from the street lamp. The fire people are back, he whispered. Outside, I heard the clink of metal. As I peered through the curtains, I finally understood. Aiden hadn't been drawing people made of yellow flames. He'd been drawing yellow coats and pants, like the fire department used. I watched them adjust something, and the hose they pointed at the house started gushing. What were they aiming at? The house wasn't on fire. 
The answer hit my mind the same moment the smell of gasoline hit my nose. They drenched the house as I retreated and grabbed my brother's hand. I visited the day my house burned down many times in my mind, picturing different scenarios. Smelling smoke and running up to get my parents instead of cowering down in the living room, afraid I'd get in trouble for being up late. Turning on every faucet in the house so that the gushing water extinguished the flames. Suffice to say, mental images are no replacement for action. I grabbed Aiden with one hand and the phone with the other. I put us in the hall closet and dialed 911. The crabby operator snapped. What's your emergency? I pitched my voice loud as I dared. Want to know why the fire department is so popular lately? Come to 5563 Willow Court. What? The line went dead. I could hear them talk outside. Why hadn't they lit the fire yet? The front door creaked. Cal called to us, sugar sweet. Were we here? Uncle Cal was worried about us. He was worried that our sister left us all alone, worried about her state of mind. Would we come out? I peeked out the closet door after I heard him pass by. He was carrying a fire axe so sharp and shiny, I could see my reflection. Well, the cops didn't take 45 minutes to respond that night. I heard the fight outside, heard Cal's heavy fire boots clumping on the floor as he ran. I waited until the sounds of struggle died down to come out. Cal was on the ground, boot on the back of his neck. He had murder in his eyes when he saw us. He spat at us and called us kindling before they slammed him in the back of the cruiser. There were much less fires after that. Funding was sucked out of the fire department and put into the cop's pocket. Cal went away for a long time, but we moved, just in case he got out early. My sister managed to put us through school. Aiden's an illustrator. They say his pictures really tell a story without words. And me? I'm a 911 operator. I don't take a whole lot of calls in the town where we settled. The occasional DV, car accidents, fires. I've gotten more fire reports this week than I've had since I started the job. Sometimes the call is just a heavy breathing hang up. I smell gasoline outside. Ooh, I do not like that cow guy. Yeah, that story kind of hits close to home just uh, because I live in California and wildfires are pretty common every year and they're getting worse. I've been fortunate enough to not have lost anything in fire, but I do know people who have been affected by them. And I sincerely hope that everyone who was affected by the most recent fires um, are okay. And our final tale is the origin story of a Thai ghost called the Cross Sioux. There is an animated version of this, so if you want to watch it, head over to youtube.com snarled and search for Ghost Guide Cross Sioux. Centuries ago, the Angkor Empire had lost a battle to the Siamese army. As part of the agreement, the Khmer Princess Tarawadi was to be wed to a powerful Siamese nobleman. But, like in most tales such as these, she was in love with another man, a young soldier who fought in the war. One night, the nobleman caught the princess and the soldier. Infuriated, he sentenced the princess to death by burning. 
Afraid for her life, the princess went to a sorceress and asked her for magic to help her survive the flames. The sorceress gave her a potion to drink that would protect her body from damage. Before being tied to the stake, the princess drank the enchanted elixir. Confident in the witch's potion, she did not put up a fight. However, the potion needed much more time to take full effect. The princess screamed in pain and terror as she watched her body become nothing more than a head with pendulous intestines. Princess Tarawadi was now doomed to spend eternity as the Krasu, the floating head. She is cursed with an endless hunger, one that can only be satiated by raw flesh. She flies around after dark on the hunt for her next meal. She feeds on cattle and chickens, but her favorite meal is the placenta. And so she searches for the homes of pregnant women in labor, hoping to suck the life from within the womb with her long tongue. You can protect yourself from the Krasu by placing thorny branches or spiked fences around your home. The Krasu will be too scared to pass, afraid she might get stuck, but she'll find another way. Beware the hunger of the Krasu. If you'd like to submit a story, send an email to somethingscary@snarled.com. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com/snarled. Until next time, sweet dreams.